the following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Much of the previous chapter is devoted to Gyrios and the others as they take the time to properly mourn the loss of Eridine. When they've made their peace with the tragedy, at least enough to move on, Harl brings them further into the shrine. They all know that the wyvern is stubbornly waiting outside for them. Umora says wyverns have been known to wait for their prey to come out from hiding for days on end, and the companions correctly guess that with each passing day, there's a chance that Neronuminax will take flight and raise another settlement. The fate of hundreds, maybe even thousands, rests on their ability not just to prevail, but to do so quickly. While the dwarves scout ahead on their own, deeper into the shrine, Umura and Gyrios have a heart-to-heart. The sorceress has a breakthrough moment when she finally shows her vulnerable side to the cleric. In game terms, this leads to her advancement to 7th level. Although her dice rolling is unimpressive, she does get the 4th level spell, Wizard Eye. Before too long, the dwarves return and gather Umura and Gyrios. Moving further into the shrine, they reach the main temple with its onyx altar and the huge stone disc emblazoned with a grinning skull that marks the entrance to the necropolis. Daz has reservations. Only the Solons are permitted to enter a necropolis, and what Harl proposes is strictly taboo and, for all they know, unprecedented. But Harl is resolute. He walks up to the disc, preparing to put his back into the effort of rolling it aside, but upon touching it, he vanishes. Chapter 75 Part 1 Day 100 Late Afternoon Party Status Harl, 37 of 39 hit points Gyrios, 30 of 37 Umura, 21 of 28 Daz, 14 of 17 Spells Available Umura has memorized Shield, Knock, and Lightning Bolt times two. Gyrios has prayed for, bless, resist fire, striking, and cure serious wounds. Gyrios teleported into the chamber while Harl was mid-sentence. I've foreseen that. After all, Blacknell himself built much of the Egerton. Daz was patting himself all over as though to make sure he wasn't missing any body parts. He couldn't understand how the others were acting so casually about what had just happened but eventually he found his voice enough to mutter, Well, we're not dead, so I suppose Gruenmog isn't too displeased. 
Daz had been the second to use the teleporter, on Umura's word that it was as safe as any doorway. Not wanting to show fear, he had bravely taken her at her word. Umura came after Daz. She moved with hesitancy. Earlier, she had gotten a memory of the half-eaten solemn from the Dwarvarian shrine in her head. Then she'd remembered the abomination they'd fought in Blacknail's vault, with its dead eyes and fearsome visage, the way it rippled under the skin with roaches and centipedes. This image would not depart, and the horror began to infect her thoughts. The idea of entering the necropolis terrified her. Since she could not banish the thoughts, she tried to ignore them. Best to just get through it as quickly as possible, she thought. They were in a round, almost featureless room, roughly 30 feet in diameter. The walls and floor were made of tightly fitted stone blocks that came together over their heads in a dome. A rounded top archway in front of them led to a tunnel that was the only visible exit. Behind them was a mirror image of the stone disc bearing the skull. Touching this, they each supposed, would transport them back to the shrine. As to where they actually were, there was little clue. Was the stone disc the opposite side of the one they had just touched? They might be a few feet away from where they'd started, or they might have traveled far, far away. It was difficult to say, though Umura noticed a familiar artificial quality to the air. She recognized it from the bottom of Thangar's silver mine, and also from Grithwip's laboratory. If she had to guess, she would wager they were somewhere deep within the mountain and completely cut off from physical access to the surface. This thought also lingered in her mind, unwelcome. Harl and Daz made a quick scan for traps before beckoning for Umura and Girios to follow. They went through the arch in a single file, with Harl in the lead, followed by Daz. Umura holding up the light source came next, while Girios trailed in the rear. This hallway took them to a second room of similar shape but larger proportions. It lacked the stone disc from the previous room and instead featured a stone slab on the middle of the floor. The slab was only two feet tall, waist-high for a dwarf. Four urns had been placed in a row in front of it. The first was made of iron, the next copper, then one of silver. The final urn was made of pure gold. Harl approached them and lifted the lid of the iron urn. He bent over and looked inside, sniffing. Scented oil, he said. This must be where they consecrate the bodies before laying them to their final rest. There's nothing here for us. Let's keep moving. From here on in, don't touch anything. The passageway continued under another rounded archway on the opposite side of the chamber. The party members walked around the slab, and Umura noticed that they were leaving a distinct trail of footprints in the dust. Unlike the shrine, there were no cobwebs in the necropolis. It underscored the feeling that this was not a place for the living. The hallway they entered sloped down and curved to the left. There was a ten-inch tall slot cut into the side of each wall that ran the full length of the passage. Mortared into these slots were scores of dwarven skulls, all in a row. Umura felt as though they were watching her, collectively, as they passed by their sightless gaze and moved deeper into the unknown. That feeling of being watched only intensified when they entered the first section of the catacombs. Here the passageway widened, and the line of skulls to either side was replaced by three shelves, or perhaps they would be better called bunks. Upon each reclined a single, dust-covered skeleton. Some were bare bones. Others had an amount of chain mail or plate armor. About half of them had a decrepit weapon laid beside or on top of them, too. Umura remembered how the anti-paladin had caused skeletons exactly like these to rise from the dead, and she shivered. Her hand went instinctively to her belt pouch, and she retrieved the Owl of Thresendia. She did not activate it, but simply holding it in her hand made her feel a little better. 
After passing several dozen of these triple-decker graves, they came to a flight of stairs that descended for 30 feet before the passageway continued. Here there were no skeletons or skulls, just a straight hallway that terminated in a rounded arch like the ones they had seen before. Passing under this arch brought them into a long rectangular space, some 40 feet across and extending ahead twice that. Four iron doors were set into the walls to their left, another four on their right. The room was symmetrical. If it were folded in half, the two sides would match perfectly. Straight ahead, barely visible at the end of the reach of their lantern light, they could make out another archway. Above each of the iron doors was a single rune, or in some cases, a set of runes, in the old tongue. Can you read any of these? asked Gyrios from behind. In front of her, Harl shook his head. Das, how about you? I think they're names. These must be the crypts for individual families. Right. That, that makes sense, agreed Umora. Hearing the shaking in her own voice, she thumbed the amber owl in her hand and took a deep breath. The sense of being watched was almost unbearable now. It had become more than just a feeling of being observed, though. It was a sense of menace, of being unwelcome. She was relieved when Harl made no move to investigate any of the doors. He moved straight to the opposite archway, and the rest of them followed. When they exited this room, the sound of their footfalls changed, and when Umura looked down, she could see that they were walking on tile now, instead of stone. Each tile was a six-inch square, wine-colored, and set at an angle so that the floor took on a pattern of diamond shapes. Looking around, she saw that this space was square, 40 feet on each side. Her light easily filled the room so all the details and furnishings were clear to see. Clear and very beautiful. In sharp contrast to the austerity of the previous sections of the catacomb, this chamber was opulent. Carved marble pillars, wide at the base and tapering almost to a point where they met the ceiling, occupied the corners. In the middle of the chamber, arranged in a ring, were golden thrones, eleven in total. The thrones all faced inward, drawing imaginary lines to the empty center like spokes on a wheel. Upon each throne was a hunched-over skeleton, held together and upright only by virtue of the armor it wore. Some were clad in scale mail, others in splinted brigandines. One of them wore plate and mail. All were rusted and covered in hoary calcification. The throne opposite them stood in the way between the companions and the room's only other exit, another rounded top archway. This was the throne bearing the skeleton in plate mail. Approaching it, they could see white enamel trim on the pauldrons, vambraces, and greaves under the frost of calcium. When they reached the very center of the chamber and were surrounded by the seated figures, for Umura, the feeling of menace reached a crescendo. <sighs> she gasped when she saw a strange glow welling up in each of the eleven skeletons. The corpses were filling with a pale turquoise light that slowly grew in brightness. In front of her, Harl and Daz took a step back, bringing up their weapons defensively. Behind her, Gyrios was reaching for his golden coin holy symbol. Umora already had the Owl of Thresendia in her hand, and she decided she could wait no longer. She squeezed it in her fist and said, Elstnok. Whether you're looking for fun, a place to start a business, or somewhere to raise a family, look no further than Palmetto City. The Lore Corporation. Better designs for a better world. Live acquisition. Hydro Sapien. Full force authorized. 
I was the one who could tell that you had potential. I pointed them towards you because you could see this for the tragedy that it is. And if you're willing to make sure that these kind of tragedies don't keep happening, tragedies that could have happened if the Lore Corporation got powers it could never control, then you'll hear me out. This American Monster. A Monster of the Week actual play from This American Dice. <laughs> Whatever you think you signed up for, kid. <laughs> you signed up for way more than you can handle. This American Monster. A Monster of the Week actual play podcast from This American Dice. Listen in every Thursday and check us out on thisamericandice.com. Hello, my name is Silas and I'm one of the hosts on Uploading Podcast. On my show, we talk about tech and gaming news stories that you probably wouldn't hear about on other podcasts. Japanese data center company starts eel farming side business. That's something I did not expect to read. We'll also chip in our own quirky opinions. One character and one card and 90 rubies for okay. 39.99 euros. <laughs> Japanese gaming furniture brand Bahamut launched its first gaming bed. Who wants to stay in bed and game? I mean, okay. to be fair, like, um, I'm notorious for using the hot uh, reaction, especially a purple one. And if you like these little bits, search for Uploading Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods or follow at uploading pod on twitter thank you and now i'm very sorry for interrupting have fun with the rest of your show chapter 75 part 2 day 100 late afternoon party status the party status is unchanged Whoa, now that was something I had not expected. Kyrios gave Daz a wan smile. To be honest, I should have foreseen that, said Harl. After all, Blacknell himself built much of the Egerton. Umura appeared in the room, looking dazed. Daz was patting himself all over, wondering how the others were acting so casually about what had just happened, but eventually he found his voice enough to mutter. Well, we're not dead, so I suppose Gruenmog isn't too displeased. Harl moved to the archway, motioning for Daz to join him. Together, they quickly scanned the portal for traps, and, finding none, continued into the passageway beyond. Umura and Gyrios followed in tow. It took them to a second rounded and domed ceilinged room, with a large and very beautiful slab of onyx in the center. Urns of various metals, arranged least to most valuable from left to right, had been placed before it. Harl had seen something like this before at certain funerals, and guessed that this slab was used to consecrate bodies before their interment. He walked up to the iron urn, removed the lid, and took a sniff. The distinct odor all but confirmed his suspicion. There was no need to check the others. Scented oil, he said over his shoulder. This must be where they consecrate the bodies before laying them to their final rest. There's nothing here for us. Let's keep moving. Harl started to walk, but then stopped and added, from here on in, don't touch anything. He then led his party around the onyx slab and under the other rounded archway. The downward sloping and curved passage they entered was lined on either side with a row of skulls that had been mortared into lengthwise recesses in the stone wall. 
Eventually, this hall widened and the twin lines of skulls were replaced by shelf-like cubbies stacked three high. Each cubby contained a skeleton. Harl could see that most of them had been warriors in life as they'd been interred with their armor or favorite weapon. He didn't stop to examine them, but moved ahead without breaking stride. Next came a 30-foot flight of stairs, and then a long rectangular room bearing eight iron doors, four to a side, with an exit on the far end. Runes were etched on iron plates affixed to the wall above each door. Can you read any of these? asked Gyrios from behind. He couldn't make out a word. He'd never been much of a student, especially where it concerned dwarven history. He shook his head. Das, how about you? I think they're names. These must be the crypts for individual families. Right. That, that makes sense, said Umura in a voice that trembled. Apparently the sorceress did not appreciate being here. Harl couldn't blame her. There was a sense that they were, somehow, not completely alone. He had no reason to tarry here, either, and so made straight for the archway on the opposite side of the room. Passing under that arch, Harl looked down and noticed the stone floor of this room had been tiled over with burgundy-colored ceramic squares. They cautiously entered a chamber bedecked in royal trappings. Harl took in the cone-shaped pillars, more a form than function to those, as well as the ring of golden thrones. Each one of them represented several lifetimes worth of wealth. The figures slouched atop them in their scale mail and their brigandines looked shrunken and forlorn. Harl was beginning to feel a sense of pity until, simultaneous with Umura's gasp from behind, he beheld a kernel of glowing light bloom in the breast of each skeleton. It brightened, and soon each of the figures was aglow with a mild turquoise aura. Now the luminous forms changed. They coalesced into a shimmering outline, not of a hunched skeleton, but a fully armored dwarf. Each wore a beard that hung to the floor, and, although the skulls yet visible behind these translucent apparitions were bare, an ornate crown upon their heads. They stood with a regal bearing, for these were the kings of the Egojin, all of them arranged in a circle in order of ascendancy, with the first king standing directly in front of Harl, clad in phantom plate mail. King Garosti said Harl, dropping to a knee. Without missing a beat, Daz did the same. Umura and Gyrios did not know what to do. The sorceress wheeled about to find that they were surrounded by specters on all sides. The apparitions wore faces of dour severity. Their forms wavered and shifted slightly, as if they stood behind a thin sheet of water. Gyrios had his golden coin holy symbol in his hand. Silently, he prayed for guidance. He got none. In fact, he had never felt so cut off from his deity. The ghost of King Gadosti spoke. His voice was otherworldly and hollow, as though it had come from someplace far, far away. Chief Stonecarver of Twitter, young scion of Augustus, you must turn back. The living have no place here, and are not welcome. Only those who have known death may remain, and your souls are yet innocent. You may come no further. Harl did not dare to lift his chin and meet the ancient king's gaze. To the floor he dared to say, Your Majesty, we cannot turn back. 
then you must know death. Now Harl did look up. The spirit was slowly floating closer, all of them were, tightening their ring around the companions. Harl heard a whimper escape Umara's lips. When he turned, he saw that Gyrios was raising his fist with the gold coin clutched inside. He was about to yell for the cleric to stop when the glowing spectral figures all around them suddenly collapsed into trembling green orbs and then exploded into millions upon millions of shining points of light. The tiny stars, a legion of fireflies, swarmed around the room for several moments before floating gently to the floor where they covered the unmoving bodies of Harl and the others like new-fallen snow, and then faded away into nothing. Nothing stirred. Lungs did not breathe air. Hearts did not pump blood. Their lives had ended, and for a time, there was only silence. Daz got up, then Umura. The sorceress blinked and placed a hand upon her breast. Somehow she knew she was not the same person she had been before. Gyrios was coming too, and now he sat up. He regarded Umura with an odd expression, and she knew he had changed as well. Then she looked at Harl. She couldn't remember his face ever looking more peaceful. She knew he still lived, or perhaps lived again, because she could see his eyes moving back and forth behind their lids. Dramatis Personae, Gyrios. When his heart stopped, Gyrios found himself transported to a world of colors. The air was warm and smelled sweetly of pine and pollen. Wildflowers bloomed all around, and a gentle breeze soothed his skin. This was all beautiful, but it was not the reason his breast overflowed with joy. She was there. Eridine was there to greet him and take his hand and lay him down on a bed of pine needles, where, finally, Gyrios learned what it was to be loved by a woman. After. She promised that her heart belonged to him alone, but that he was not finished his work in the world of the living. Slowly, she faded into nothingness, leaving Gyrios consumed with a feeling of happiness and of loss, but mostly of wisdom. He finally understood, after all these years. Mazagar had once made a promise to him in the voice of a child. Gyrios himself had been a child and had not understood then or since. Not until now. Mazagar had said that if Gyrios would be his sword in the fight against Ophion, then, in exchange, he would always be Gyrios' shield. Furthermore, he would send Gyrios an angel before his death. Now he understood. Mazagar had sent him an angel, and long before his death. He had met her in a tiny cell under the ruins of an ancient watchtower months ago and she had barely left his side since.
There's nothing quite like dying and being reborn to give you a new perspective on life. In Gyrios' case, this revelation occurs on a Level Up episode, and what could be more appropriate? Let's get some dice and start rolling. First, some new hit points. Rolling a d6 with a plus one for his constitution bonus. Ah, bad luck. I rolled a one. Well, that'll become a four after the minute is applied. His new total is 41. Now let's try for attribute increases. Ready? Here we go. Strength. A six. Now wait a minute. His 12 going to a 13 in this attribute will actually give him a plus one to hit and damage. That's kind of huge considering what's going to happen in the next episode. It more than makes up for the poor hit points roll. Can he do it again? Intelligence. A three. I still have faith. Wisdom. A five. The test of faith is patience. Dexterity. A four. Constitution. A two. My faith is wavering, I admit. Charisma. Another two. Well, all things considered, no complaints here. That was a very lucky level up. As for spells, at level 7, Gyrios' new capacity is two spells each of levels 1, 2, and 3, plus one of each levels 4 and 5. This is great, but there is a catch. Gyrios will need to pray for these new spells, and he won't be able to do so while they remain in the necropolis. This area is the domain of Grunmog, and while the Dwarven God might be an aspect of Mazagar, there is, and Gyrios can feel this, some kind of barrier between the cleric and his deity. Dramatis Personae Harl Stonecarver When his heart stopped, Harl found himself transported to a world of grey. The air was thick with the sweetly sickening odour of Ankeg innards. Rough, cavern walls surrounded him as he stood facing the giant grub-like form of the Queen Ankeg with his companions and the warriors of Thangar behind him. This was clearly a nightmare of some kind, but that was not the reason his breast tightened with dread. She was there. Eredin, bow in hand and awaiting his next command. He heard his own voice speaking aloud, even though he had not willed it and was powerless to stop. Shoot this one. Moving like a puppet, Harl involuntarily pointed at Puck Swiftpick. It was as though he were a passenger in his own skin, or a prisoner. All he could do was watch. He didn't even have the ability to shut his eyes. Eredin pulled back on her bow and sent an arrow into Swiftpick's chest. At the moment the arrow thudded home, the dwarf's eyes bulged and his skin started to sizzle with acid. The dwarf that had once been melted like a candle down to a gristle-covered skeleton. The queen Ankeg swayed her head back and forth and laughed. <laughs> Again, she said. When the queen opened its mouth, Harl could see the slime-covered and lifeless face of Ursuleth within, halfway down its gorge. In horror, Harl heard himself say, Now this one and saw his finger point at Captain Terrig's slinghitch. Eridine put out the captain's eye. The socket bubbled with acid around the arrow shaft, and the smell of burning flesh filled Harl's nostrils. Once again, the Queen Ankeg laughed, pedaling her little feet in the air. <laughs> Ak 
again, it commanded, and Harl obeyed. He pointed at Eridine herself and said, You. Eridine did not hesitate. She dropped her bow and drew a dagger from her belt. She put the blade against her throat and drew a crimson line straight across it. Thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are now four ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My thanks to everyone who has supported the show. I'd like to read a review from iTunes today. This one was posted by Other Side of the Pond. Other Side writes... No nonsense, no ambient table noise or people eating between encounters. Just a straightforward D&D role-playing experience that is streamlined into bite-sized chunks, always leaving you wanting more. Only seven episodes in, but already hooked. Storyteller does a great job of explaining rules and game dynamics while weaving a compelling story with characters we know not to hold on to too tightly, as no one is untouchable. Considering recent events in the show, this review is especially relevant. No one is untouchable, that's for sure. Thanks very much, Other Side. I'm delighted that people are still finding the show and getting on board, despite what might seem like a daunting stack of episodes to catch up on. I promise the podcast continues to be free of Doritos, but full of danger right to the end. In other news, there's a fresh voice on the show. Thanks and welcome to Aaron Smith, who plays the ghost of King Gadosti. Of course, once again, I'd like to thank Jared Grimm for his wonderful voice work, playing Daz Augerstone. You can find Jared on Twitter at CrazyDrunkenElf. I'm on Twitter too, at Manticore Tale, or if you prefer Instagram, I'm at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.com, where I post show notes, art, character sheets, maps, and other miscellany. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. It's a dark and stormy night, and you approach the bar. As the woman turns, she says, Who are you, adventurers? My name's Margaret Battlehammer. Did you want to know more about me than that? I'm a dwarf. Can you tell by my height? That's right, and I'm Jump Funding than everyone. Lead and rhythm looters to the justice-loving friends. I play drums. And I'm the lead and rhythm looters to the justice-loving friends. Yeah, you said that already. What? It is my honour to be the near-soul vocalist <laughs> of the justice-loving friends. I am a grung, fled from my people due to their slaving nature. <laughs> but my name is Black. A <laughs> beautiful story, Black. And I'm Morik, the forest father. I play the pan flute. Yep. I'm tall and greeny Morik just looking down at himself like, <laughs> I guess I'm quite furry. <laughs> the woman looks at you fully perplexed and says, uh, that's great. I only needed your names for the coffee order. <laughs> oh, just put it down under Quest Fantastic. A D&D actual play podcast. <laughs> what, what a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs>